uh, although I did come in second in the pastoral division of the, uh, of the extreme run, uh, I beat all the other pastors except for Rich, uh, Rusty Richard. Um, none of the rest of them ran. So we're going to have a throwdown uh, here next year. We're going we're gonna to challenge all of the other pastors in town to do it with us. And we're hoping that the priest over at the Catholic Church will compete in his robe. So, because that would be awesome to see. Um, I, uh, but uh, what we are going to do, actually, is we're going to try and get, it to get teams together, Chili Bible versus Chili Christian, and uh, put together shirts and that kind of thing, and actually have a little competition out of it. Uh, some of you uh, younger folks who uh, want to get muddy and climb stuff and uh, run over things, uh, might join in with us. So be, be thinking about that. Uh, it's not too early to start training. Um, and uh, actually, there's some others that are going on here in the area. In fact, in October, there's one called the Spartan Race that uh, Rusty and I are thinking about getting involved in. Uh, I'm wanting to do the eight-mile one, which is um, 16 obstacles, uh, eight miles, and um, agony. But lots of fun. Uh, when you When you complete one of these... You feel, you feel all that testosterone course through your veins. It's a great feeling. Um, and you're covered in mud. And, you know, it's, it's awesome. So um, uh, now I would never tell this joke, but Dick Langenfelter would, and he told this to me. Uh, and it's appropriate as we start this, uh, start this sermon here this morning. Do you know what the penalty for polygamy is? You get more than one wife. <laughs> okay, like I say, I would never say that, but Dick Lingenfelter, one of our charter members of Chillicothe Bible Church, he would tell you that joke. Um, and that sounds pretty bad, but not for the reason that you think. Uh, I am a man who is married, uh, been married now 16 years, celebrated 16 years with Karen on the uh, 1st of June. And I wouldn't be single again for all the money in the world. And most men that I know, including, I'm guessing, most of the men here, would feel exactly the same way because um, being married is one of the great blessings of your life. After your salvation, it's probably the greatest blessing that you have. If you have a good wife, uh, you have found, as Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds what is good and finds favor from the Lord. Amen? But here's the thing. Um, The reason that having more than one wife is not only the definition of polygamy, but also the punishment for it is that every time God's design for marriage is violated, disaster and destruction is the result every single time. If you think you can go against uh, God's design for marriage and be successful, Read your Bible. What you will find out is that you can't. No one can. And any society that tries to do this is, is one that experiences God's judgment at a very fundamental level because the family of a man and a woman and children that are born by that couple who stays together forever until one of them dies is God's design for marriage, and it is God's design for family, and it is the basis of a stable, healthy society. 
And if you wonder why we have some of the problems that we have in America today, it's because people have decided they're going to go fundamentally against what God has outlined with reference to the family. You don't see, even in non-Christian families, you don't see many of the problems that we see other places in our society among families where it's a man and a woman and their children and they stay married to each other. You just don't see them. Uh, What you do see is when people try to come up with their own plan for how a family should operate and how it should work, what you see there is destruction and death and disaster follows in the wake of that. And we're going to give you a live example. You know, Genesis, you know, people think, I've said this before, people think the Bible is the story of good people doing good godly things, and this is the inspired record of them, and you should be like the people in the Bible. In some cases, that's true. In many, 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 many cases, as in most of Genesis, what you see is train wreck after train wreck after train wreck of people that God chooses to use by his sovereign grace and by his plans and purposes because he loves them in spite of their ungodly, uh, very bad behavior. And what we want to see today is that God, even in the midst of great sin, even in the midst of family dysfunction and, and disaster, even then God is present and he is working by his grace to bring his purposes, his good plans to fruition for his people. Uh, What you see in a a polygamous situation in every case is you see the house is filled with strife as the wives begin to compete for the affections and love of the man that they share in common. And if you think that that's a bad idea, and it is, just wait until you see the results it brings among the children because they're all competing with each other for the same love and affection from dad. And all of them know that the relationship that dad has with their mothers at the moment also overflows to them. So if mom isn't the favorite wife at the moment, then they aren't the favorite children. And it's all a destructive, dysfunctional, sinful mess. And Jacob and his family would make an excellent candidate for the Jerry Springer show. They really would. You know, you wonder where Jerry Springer gets these people that go on his program. Some of the people that should be on there are in your Bible. And Jacob and his family are some of those folks. It's a family at war with itself. And uh, we're going to look at all of the sin and ugliness that's present in that situation. And you'll need to buckle your seatbelt for that because it gets really ugly. But what I want to emphasize is not the ugliness but the fact that God is still present in his grace in even this messed up family. And I want you to turn and we'll read together um, beginning in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. And we're going to go all the way through verse uh, through chapter 30 today. So it'll be a kind of a, it's kind of a, a long reading, but we'll uh, we'll look at all of it. Two incidents in this family war. Two major battles, if you will. Uh, verse, beginning of verse 31, chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. And his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And then she, so she called his name Naphtali. Then when Rachel, when Leah saw she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. And in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, if you remember from last week, Jacob never wanted to be married to Leah to begin with. Uh, he wound up married to her through deceit and treachery, uh, both hers and her father Laban's. Uh, he did not love her, though she was his first wife. But God is nevertheless gracious to Leah. He enables her to bear children when Rachel, her sister, and the wife that Jacob wanted all along was infertile. And there's a really interesting dynamic here. Leah knows that she's not 
the loved wife. She knows that he's only married to her because she and her father Laban tricked Jacob into marrying her. And and because her the reason he did that, I believe, is because Laban knew, hey, the older daughter's kind of homely looking. She's never going to be able to get married. I'm just going to have to trick Jacob into marrying her. I wonder what that does to your self-worth as a woman. To not only be seen as the ugly sister, but to figure out that the only way that you can get married, have any hope of doing that, is to get the prospective groom drunk so he doesn't know who he's with until the morning after. This is a mess, as I said. Um, but she is capable of producing sons, and you know this is a big deal because male heirs are those who carry on the family and the family name, and she is able to have four sons. And when each of her first four sons is born, she gives the boy a name that reflects the pain that she feels in the struggle that she has for her husband's love and affection in competition with her sister. And she names the first boy Reuben, which means, see, a son. Because she's talking about how the Lord sees. And now the, now my husband will love me. Surely the Lord sees what's going on. And now my husband will love me because I've given him a son. And she names the next boy Simeon, which sounds like the word in Hebrew for herd. Because she says, well, now the Lord has heard me in my distress. And next she has Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Because she says, well, I've given him three boys. Surely my husband will be attached to me now. Surely he'll love me now. There's some real pain in this. Can you imagine also growing up as the boy? In these circumstances, with a name like Levi, that my mom gave me my my name because Dad wasn't really attached to her, but she was hoping that when I was born he would be. And then she has Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise, because finally she's praising the Lord for having four boys, and. And the, th- the thing is, in this, there really is a mixture of ungodly competition and actual trust in God by Leah in all these things. She is giving God credit for all her boys, as she should. But there's also this deep desire to be the wife that Jacob loves. And she, therefore, uses these boys as pawns in this competition, even as she looks to God to give her these sons to begin with. And and I just want to just say as an aside that I think that that is a lot like us. You know, a lot of us, maybe we're not in, in competition with another woman in our home. Uh, if you are a woman, if you're a guy, you're not, uh, you hopefully don't have, you know, a wife and another wife or a wife and a girlfriend. Uh, if you do, see me afterwards. We'll talk. Um but what I mean by that is this, that a lot of times in our good moments, they're also mixed in with sin. 
that even in the times that we're praising God, we've got some amount of sin and mixed motives and things that we're messing up on that at the same time we're praising God for. And, you know, Leah has got her thing is competition. Maybe your thing is is your job or your spouse or your kids or whatever it is. And even as you praise God for it, there's still probably at least some element of sin in the midst of whatever that situation is. And the reason I bring that up is this, is that God is still gracious. He doesn't wait for us to be perfect people to bestow his blessing, because if he did, when would we get it? Never. (laughs) Right? And God is still working in Leah's life, and he is still being gracious to her, even though what she's doing is not particularly godly. She still is looking to God for these boys, and God is still blessing her and being gracious to her in giving her sons, even though the part of the reason that she wants them is not simply to have kids, but, but to use as a club in her struggle against her sister which is not a good thing. And at this point, Rachel's infertility is causing major tension between her and Jacob. And by the way, uh, if you have had fertility issues, I sympathize because those are tough. Those are really tough issues. And they can become this source of major conflict between husband and wife. And here they become a major source of conflict. And Rachel says, boy, you need to man up here. Give me some children. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? We're working on this, okay? But it's God who opens and shuts the womb. And I can't control that. Sorry. And so she decides to come up with another plan. And the plan she comes up with is, oh, I have a brilliant idea. I'll give you my servant girl. And you can have children with her because what we really need in this situation is what? Another wife. Because that'll make things a lot simpler. Let's get another set of hormones involved in this. This will be great. And so she gives Jacob her servant girl and says, have children with her, and the children you have with her will be mine legally. And they are. Legally, that's how that worked in that day. And according to the legal custom of the day, children had by your servant girl are legally yours as the mistress of the house. And so the servant girl has two boys. Uh, The first one is named Dan, and his name sounds like the Hebrew word for judged. Because she says her lack of children is God's judgment on her. But that God has also heard her cry and been gracious. And so she has this boy through her servant girl. And then she names the next boy Naphtali, which sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling, because she has been wrestling with Leah over her husband. And, of course, the next step, since these two sisters are competing is for Leah to go, well, you know, I've got a servant girl and I haven't been able to have any boys in a while. I'll give her to Jacob as a wife so I can have some more kids legally through her. 
And so Zilpah has two sons, Gad, which sounds like the Hebrew word for good fortune, and Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew for for happy. And I doubt very much that anyone in this whole mess is actually happy, except when they feel like they're getting victory over each other. But in reality, no one is winning in this whole mess. Because what Proverbs says is true. Better a dry crust of bread with peace than a mighty feast with strife. Amen? Which would you rather have? A house full of peace or with, with some stale bread? Or steak and potatoes but everybody is fighting? I'll take stale bread and peanut butter every time. Most people would. And that's what's going on. And just when you think things can't get any worse, they do. Reuben, the firstborn son of Leah, goes out and he finds some mandrake roots, which mandrake roots, uh, the way that they grow, they look like uh, the arms and legs and head of a man. And they were thought in that day to be both uh, an aphrodisiac as well as a fertility-enhancing deal. And you would eat them as the woman, and then you would be more fertile, and your husband would have great desire for you, and you would be able to conceive, was the idea. Rachel's desperate to have a child, so she says to Leah, give me some of those mandrakes. And she says, and notice what Leah says, is it not enough you've taken away my husband? Now whose husband was... Jacob's supposed to be Rachel's. But Leah has clearly taken possession here. Right? I was the firstborn daughter. I should have been married first. If anybody has a right to Jacob, I do. And she says, well, what do you got in exchange? Well, Jacob hadn't been spending a lot of time at my tent in the evenings. So uh, I need that in exchange for the mandrake roots. And so Leah goes out to inform her husband that she has paid the price for his services that evening uh, with her son's mandrakes. Now, I bet that's just a fantastic conversation. Uh, My sister and I are pimping you out, big guy. Um, And you are now the herd bull around here, and I've paid for you. This is just gross. This whole thing is just gross. And that night is sufficient for Leah to conceive again. She has a fifth son, Issachar, uh, which, is, which is wages. She says, God is rewarding me for giving Jacob uh, my handmaid. God isn't. He is blessing her in spite of her sinfulness. But that's not the way she sees it, and that's the name she gives him as a result. And then later, uh, Leah has two more children, a sixth and final son. She names Zebulun, which means honor, and um, because she is hoping after six sons that Jacob will finally honor her. And then a daughter named Dinah. And finally, after all this, Rachel conceives too, and she has her own son, her firstborn, that she names Joseph, which means may God add. In other words, I've had one boy, it's time for another. Okay? 
I have only encountered that situation one time. It was with Karen after we had our first son, John. And I am, the epidural is still in effect, so I'm having to walk her to the bathroom. And she says to me, she really, he, no, he really needs a brother. And I went, how about you learn to walk? <laughs> okay, you still got one dead leg <laughs> from the epidural. Okay, but, but Rachel it has a different motivation. Not, hey, he really needs a brother. It's, I want to prove that I am the better wife, so I need another boy. Eventually she'll have one, and that boy will take her life. Benjamin. And the whole thing is a train wreck from beginning to end with sin that compounds all the way through. But did you notice that God never blesses his bases, his blessings on their good obedience, but on his own purposes and plans? Because God had promised Jacob a large family and he gives it to him, utilizing even Jacob and all of his wives to move forward with the promises that he's made, because God is still faithful even answer the prayers of people who would really be better off if he didn't. God is still faithful. God is still acting in grace. God is still moving to accomplish his purposes and to bring blessing even in the midst of this terribly messed up family. God is still gracious. And he doesn't base his blessing on their obedience, but on his plans and purposes and his love and grace for them. Another next battle here in the family war. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for, you know, the services I have given you. Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they'll be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs that found with me shall be counted stolen." And Laban said, good, let it be as, as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a, a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, so the lambs brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. 
And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart, did not put them with Laban's flock. And ever the stronger the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler flock would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob wants to leave for home. Laban wants him to stay because he knows that God is blessing him through Jacob. His flocks and all his property have increased greatly under Jacob's management for the last 14 years. But Laban no longer has a legitimate claim on Jacob's labor. And so Jacob ought to be on his guard here because Laban's going to make a deal with him again. And every time Laban makes a deal, he comes out on the muddy end of the stick. Uh, but nevertheless, Jacob strikes up a deal. And he says, look, I want all the streaked and spotted and black among the goats and the sheep to belong to me. And you'll own all the, all the more common, solid white ones. Generally speaking, among the varieties of sheep that are present in the Middle East, the black sheep and the striped sheep that have black spots and so forth on them are uncommon, and white sheep are common. If you're in the desert, white sheep make a lot more sense. White sheep don't tend to overheat as much. But black sheep are much more uncommon. They're, um, they're an unusual color variation, and they were considered lucky in uh, or a good omen in Jacob's day. And Jacob says, well, look, you know, there's only a few of the black or striped or spotted ones uh, that are in the flock, and just give me those, and I'll give you all the white ones. And Laban agrees to the deal, but he takes all of the ones in the flock that are currently colored and gives them to his boys, even though Jacob had originally said, give me those today so that I can establish my own flock. So Jacob is out there in the desert, and he has an all-white flock of sheep, and all the ones that are, are color variations are nowhere around. So how is he going to get paid? Like tends to produce like. All white is the most common color. Where are my wages going to come from? Well, Jacob is like, well, my uncle has hammered me again. I've got to get, get a way to get paid. So I'm going to come up with a, he, he comes up with the equivalent of an ancient breeder's trick, which is well, I'm going to take these sticks that have white in them and I'm going to peel stripes in them. And the thinking went that, it, that whatever the flocks saw, as they were breeding, that's what color or what color pattern the, the offspring would be. Now, their understanding of genetics was not what ours is. And what happens is, what happens is in reality, Jacob thinks, hey, my scheme works because that's what the offspring start being. But in reality, what's happening? God is blessing. Though Though Laban is trying to horn his son-in-law and nephew uh, once again, God is blessing. God is overriding, 
And he's using even Jacob's scheming to, as the instrument of blessing to give him the property that he needs. And, and over time, what begins to happen is this, is that all the strongest animals bear black and spotted and streaked offspring, and all the weaker ones go to Laban. And so he winds up where he started off with a big herd of all white ones, he winds up with a small herd of all white ones and Jacob with a big herd of black, spotted, and streaked ones. And Jacob got richer over time and Laban got poorer, which is going to lead to some major conflict where Jacob's going to have to run for his life. That's the next, that's next week. Um, and when you read a passage like this, you realize two things. Number one, there aren't any great moral examples in here. There's nothing worth imitating in this whole deal. Okay, ladies, if you find some mandrake roots, do not go out to, you know, greet your husband at the door and tell him you have hired him for the night. Don't do that. Okay, Um, don't do that. Not a good idea. Do not pursue for your husband an additional girlfriend. You know, this is not none of this is makes any moral sense. None of this is in accord with any revelation that God gave in terms of how you ought to live your life. But the other thing that you see is that God is present in grace, even in the midst of this mess. And I think a lot of us think that what the way a relationship with God works is that God loves us and he blesses us when we're good. That God watches over us when our cause is just, when we're repentant, and when we're not wrapped up in sin. And it's certainly true that God does bless those who obey and those who turn away from sin and rebellion. He does bless in those circumstances. But what passages like this reveal to us is that God doesn't necessarily wait for all that to happen to bring blessing. And that maybe confuses us a bit because we like to have neat moral categories. Good people get God's blessing. Kind of scroungy people like Jacob and all of his family, they don't get God's blessing. But that's not actually how it works. God has a plan and a purpose, and he's operating in grace with those he has chosen even when they are in sin. Even when they are still struggling, even when they don't have motives that are pure, even when they're in conflict, even when the primary motivation for your action is getting even or out of envy, even then, God is still present with us. And he is still working on us and with us through our circumstances, frequently choosing to bless us, even in spite of our behavior and our motives, and even using the most sinful episodes in our lives to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Because here's the thing. The sons that all these women bear become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of the nation. And their competitive childbearing eventually forms the basis of the nation through which God's ultimate blessing to all nations comes. And God and his purposes and plans and his gracious love for us is not thwarted by our sin. Because he is able to extend grace and to work even in the midst of the biggest mess we can create. Does that make sense? Even in the midst of all of the stuff 
And this is some of the grossest stuff in your Bible. If this was on TV, it would be a soap opera that would be rated R. And yet God is still working even with these folks to bring about His good plans and His good purposes because He has chosen these people and He loves them and He is working even through these folks to accomplish His good plans and purposes. And that ought to give you and me a whole tremendous amount of hope and encouragement. That if God can work in this kind of a mess, that God can work in your mess and my mess too. And that God is working by grace in your life and in mine, no matter what our circumstances are. Amen? Let's go to prayer. Let's thank God for His grace. God, our Father, we thank You that You saved by grace and You continue to work in our lives by grace. And you bring us final salvation, glorification, standing before you for all eternity by grace. Not based on our performance, not based on our goodness, not based on the purity of our motives or the justice of our cause. Because we have nothing to commend us. Because we are sinners from start to finish. Father, by your grace you save us. By your grace you transform us. By your grace, you bring us into your presence, into your family, and one day into glory. And Father, we thank you that you don't always wait until we are better people to make our lives better. Father, we thank you. You're a God of grace and love, whose purposes and plans and whose good goals for us are not thwarted by our sin. And we thank you for giving us Jacob's story to make that all clear to us. And Father, we ask your blessing on each person here that they would turn to you and find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One thing I do want to tell you, uh, traditionally, normally, I would greet you at the door on your way out, but we would like to keep our business meeting really short since we are not feeding you today. So I'm not going to greet you. uh, And we would encourage you to, if you're a member, to stay uh, and, um, and, and participate in the meeting and to vote. If you're a regular attender, we would love to have you also stay. You won't be allowed to vote. But we want you to be informed and to uh, be aware of what's going on. And we're going to start the meeting about five minutes after they stop singing. So I won't greet you, not because I don't want to, but because we want to keep things brief. So I love you, and I'll, I'll greet you from here. All right?